Before we get into God's Word, uh, we're going to do a few special things. In fact, uh, I'll just introduce our, our series we're in the middle of. My name is Peter. If you're visiting, I serve as the lead pastor of the Springs. We're in the middle of our For the Love series. Uh, we're actually going to be in John 6 today, if you want to put your finger in the Bible before we get to this next thing. Morgan Stevens, the lead pastor of uh, Mosaic Church, who we're doing this series in tandem with, came down and shared from a message from uh, the fifth chapter, John chapter 5, last week. He also shared a special announcement about the relationship between our two churches. We encourage everyone to go and hear more about uh, the special thing God's doing in us. Uh, our podcasts are available at thespringstx.org slash sermons. Now, before we get to our For the Love sermon, I want to bring up our community growth group leaders and share about our For the Love campaign. So if you're a community growth group leader, you can come up front. In fact, if you're a student growth group leader, raise your hand so everyone can see your pretty face too. We have a lot of folks that every week we want to honor God and make disciples. That's a group project. It's a group project. In every one of our growth groups, it is obligatory. Every time we pray, what we do, we call it needs and names. It's how we pray. Everyone in the circle, we say, has a personal need that we're going to pray for with faith. And everyone in the circle also has a name of someone not yet in the circle, not in any other church, that we're going to pray for right here. It's a transformative habit that for the love takes us outside of ourselves. Now, in this campaign that we're doing this fall, we're actually taking it a step further. We're compelling every single member that's a part of our growth groups to not just pray for someone, but to do something tangible for someone that we've been praying for. I want you to know, everyone here, God wants to use you to touch the world. Starting with the people he's chosen in his wisdom to place around you in your life. Now this fall, some of these groups are challenging members to buy a meal for someone in their group. And then when they go out to the meal, they share their story and ask if that person needs prayer. Some of our groups have decided to go rake leaves for friends. One of our groups has decided to fast and pray for the healing of another member of a friend of, of their, in their groups, physical healing in their body. That's a very tangible way to bless someone, amen? We say pray, invite, connect. We pray for people that God's chosen to put around our lives, our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, our family. And we take it a step further. We invite those people into relationship, and sometimes that invitation costs us a little time and money, praise the Lord. And then we are surprised when we see God connect them to himself, to his church. We're inviting everyone that's seated in this congregation to join someone that just raised their hand on the campus or one of these beautiful people in the movement of God, the adventure of knowing him and making him known. So while they're getting back to their seats, thank you, everyone, give them a hand. Can everyone else stand to your feet with me to honor God's word? didn't say that fast enough. We're in John chapter 6. We're in the middle 
of our series. We're pretty much all fall. So far, we've been going chapter by chapter. Uh, We'd go years in the book of John if we did that. So next week, we'll skip a few chapters ahead. This week, we're in John chapter 6, starting with verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing the large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we going to buy bread so all these people can eat? He said this, verse 6, to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated so also the fish, and as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, Jesus told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments from the barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, please add a supernatural blessing to the reading of your word. A blessing that's way beyond our familiarity way beyond our ability to piece together what we think about the world and about your word. You caused John to write this book so that in believing in you, Jesus, the Son of God, we might have life in your name. So help us, grant that we would have life in your name, that we would have true, examined, risk-taking belief in you, for who you are, and not belief in a counterfeit that tries to subsist on a counterfeit life, that we would have life. That's my prayer today. In Jesus' name I pray. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Today, as we dig deeper into this passage, I have three key things that I want you to know. And then I'm going to leave you with one crucial thing that I want to compel you to do. So number one, you need to know that what you have is not enough. Starting out really uplifting here. What you have is not enough. Now, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John... Three authoritative, powerful eyewitness testimonies of the best person who ever lived or will ever live, at least. Testimony of Jesus 
These four people gave four different, distinct, diverse, verifiable, united accounts for this person Jesus and his three short years on earth. There's very few things written in the gospel accounts that are in all four of the gospel accounts. And this incident with the bread and the thousands upon thousands of people is one of them. John was arguably the person of the four gospel writers that was closest relationally to Jesus, had access to more information than others. And John was the last person who wrote his gospel account, as an old man in his 80s, likely. So what is it that John saw about this moment feeding the multitudes that he decided we just needed to know. Let's go back and set the scene. Thousands upon thousands of people start to gather around Jesus after seeing him do miracles. He had healed one person at a pool. He had healed another person that was sick and dying. He said things that normal humans don't tend to say. And there was a mysterious pull and attractiveness to him. And people gathered around him. Forgetting their hunger for food, they gathered around him in pasture lands. Thousands of people. They think in this moment probably around 20,000 people. The gospel accounts then really only counted the men. So we have good reason to believe that there's 20,000 people following Jesus around. And they're excited. They're thinking, man, is this the one? Is this the guy who's just going to crush the power of Caesar? And Rome will be done and we'll have our Messiah? They had this great expectation. Mostly an okay and pure expectation, but not quite. Nonetheless, it was way better than the the attitude that the disciples had at the time. See, the disciples, seeing all these people drawing next to Jesus and drawing near to Jesus, they just saw the burden of ministry on them. In fact, we know from other accounts that some of the disciples went to Jesus. They're like, Jesus, send these people away. Why? So they didn't have to feed them. Tell these people to go home so they can get themselves some food. How are we going to handle all these people? Jesus, testing them, throws out this crazy question. He says to them, as if it's their responsibility, which they hadn't considered, or maybe some of them fearfully had considered, man, Jesus might ask us to do something crazy here. I see this. I've been here before. There's a little deja vu right now. And sure enough, Jesus says, uh, Hey, Philip, where are we going to buy food for all these people? I'm sure Philip took it as like this this asinine question, like, I don't know, Mars, Jesus? I don't know. (laughs) And Jesus asked them this question, and Jesus was extremely serious. Where are we going to buy food for all of these people? I mean, can you imagine seeing 20,000 people and thinking, all right, we're going to feed all these people. Imagine a stadium full of people. The first thought in my mind wouldn't be, man, i got to feed all these people. But it wasn't Jesus. He says to Philip, we're going to buy food for all these people. Jesus knew that the nearest town was nine miles away. Why would he ask a question like this? You'll find that as you read through the Bible, God often asks questions that he already knows the answer to. Right from the very start. Adam, where are you? He knew where Adam was. 
But he knew that Adam didn't quite know where Adam was and who Adam was. Or Jesus says in the book of Luke, why do you call me Lord and you don't do what I say? He knew the answer to that question. He knew that there was a a tragic incompatibility with what we proclaim and what's really going on in our hearts. Why, Why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? Jesus often often asks questions that he knows the answer to. And so he says here, where are we going to buy food for all these people? says the next verse, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. You'll find that God often blows your paradigm about what he expects for your life, which is way bigger of a dream and a plan and and a, and a, a power of following than you can ever hope for. He asks things of you and expects things of you that you cannot do unless he helps you. And that's the point. Can you turn to your neighbor and say, God wants to help you? Now turn to your other neighbor and say, you really need help. God asks things of us that we cannot do without his help. And so he asked Philip, where are we going to get bread for all these people? And Philip, I think, responds sarcastically. He throws out this astronomical number, 200 denarii, almost a year's worth of wages. If we dropped 40 grand or something, no one kind of has that kind of money. None of this money would be enough to feed all of these people to just have a little nibble of this food. I think he said it sarcastically, almost vindictively to Jesus. And I can imagine the the awkward silence with the other 12 people. They're like, oh, snap. Back away. James and John knew that Jesus, they're kind of waiting for any moment that Jesus was going to call down fire from heaven and have like a little relapse of the Elijah on the Mount Carmel moment. They're just like, okay, wait a minute here. Don't mouth off to Jesus. This guy just healed a bunch of people. I'm kind of afraid of him. I can imagine one of the disciples kind of like, tried to be discreet, getting his cell phone out and videoing. Like, but then Andrew, and it's funny that it makes him mention that he's Peter's brother because he does a very Peter thing. And he steps in, let me fill this awkward silence with something. He says, uh, you know, there's a kid here who has five barley loaves and a few fish. Basically like a number four combo at Long John Silver. We've got that. I'm not sure if he was just throwing that out there to fill the silence or if he actually thought that he was being helpful. But I also can imagine in this moment him staying there and being left out there, dude, there's no rewind on myself. And it's out there. And I can imagine the other disciples like, dude, shut up. I bet Bartholomew was kind of grabbing his arm like, come on, man, shut up. He says this, we've got all this stuff here. But then he quickly backs away from what he just said. I think he probably tried to play it off like, you know, like I'm making a point against you, Jesus, because obviously this isn't going to work. We've got all this stuff, but what are they for so many, he says. It's like, look, we've got this, but it couldn't feed 20,000 ants. What are they for so many? Well, the answer is nothing, unless they're in Jesus' hands. We'll come back to that. Because what Andrew and what Philip were both right about, regardless of the tiny bit of nothingness or the the asinine amount of way too much that we don't have, neither was enough. 
Andrew said, we don't have enough. And he was right. And what you need to know is you don't have enough either. What you have is not enough. What you have is not enough to get to heaven, first of all. It's not enough to make you right with God. What you need to know about sin, I'm going to take a moment about, to talk about getting to heaven. And Do we have what it takes? Do you have what it takes? No. What you have is not enough to get to heaven. I promise there's an uplifting part to this. What you have is not enough. Sin. Sin is not just a disease for which we need a cure. It's a crime for which we will face judgment before a holy God. And let's think about the severity of sin for a minute. This is an illustration that someone else pointed out that I can understand. The severity of sin on earth. If you punch your sister you might get grounded, right? That's the consequence, the severity given the crime committed against a particular person, like your sister. You might get grounded if you punch your sister. Now, if you punch the president, you'll be driven to the ground by a few warm rounds of lead, right? You will die. Same crime, but the value of the target societally very different, and therefore the consequence of the crime, very, very different. If you rebel against a perfect God of perfect glory and purity and extreme worth, what's the consequence for that? Or adding to that with other excuses and attempted minimizations of sin. What's, what's, what's the consequence? Well, let me just say that what you have is not and will never be enough to repay. Only an infinite price can repay an infinite debt. What you have is not enough to get to heaven. What you have is not enough to fulfill your calling to bring heaven on earth. What you have is not enough to do what you're supposed to do on earth. That's what Jesus is wanting them to see here. How are you going to get bread to feed all these people as if that's your job? And it is. What you have all to yourself is not enough. Jesus expects us to feed the multitudes. He expects us to do the impossible. And what we have is not enough. Now, if you're sacrificial and generous and you can figure out a way to, to make your life produce the kind of, of wealth that Philip was even talking about, and you're just dropping 40 grand right and left, that's still not enough. Philip says it right then and there. Even if we had that, everyone would just get a nibble. It's not enough. We're called to feed the multitudes, and it requires bread. It requires figurative bread, like money. It requires, most, most of, of all, it requires the bread of life to be so full of the supernatural word of God that we're ready to do the impossible. We expect the impossible. What we have is not enough. And bottom line, what you have is not enough to even satisfy yourself. Not even enough to satisfy yourself. And as we see the progression of the rest of this chapter, we see that Jesus wants to make that point exactly. He knows that maybe our culture is different than first century 
uh, Middle, Middle Eastern Jewish culture. But what we have in common is we tragically try to fill ourselves and satisfy ourselves with things that will not satisfy. And what he wants you to know is what you have alone to yourself is not enough to satisfy yourself. Ask yourself this question. What, what do you look to to satisfy your soul? What do you seek? Examine yourself for a minute. And keep in mind that God knows the real answer. He, he knows what your heart truly longs for, whether it's going to satisfy you or not. What you have is not enough. You were made for God, and only God can satisfy you. You cannot. What you have is not enough. Number two, what you don't have wouldn't be enough either. What you don't have wouldn't be enough either. Philip says even 200 denarii wouldn't. And he was right. Ironically, in his exaggeration, he was making the point Jesus was wanting him to make and not even seeing it. What you don't have wouldn't be enough either. And what we need to know today is that rich guy who has all those things or that girl who has all those Instagram followers or that guy and his job and his wife, his salary, his gifting, if you had that, it wouldn't fulfill your desires either. What you don't have, if you had it, wouldn't be enough. Some of the greatest blessings that God can give us without us seeing it is when he doesn't give you what you want. Oh God, I need this. I need this. Okay, well, son, we have a fundamental misunderstanding about what need means, but I love you anyway. I'm going to bless you with not giving you that. Jesus says, what, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? What you don't have wouldn't be enough if you had it. Let me let, me let you inside my inner world for a minute, carefully. And let you know just what happens in, in my person often when I'm tempted in my flesh to desire the things that I don't have that wouldn't be enough. Just let you know kind of what goes on inside my head over the last 21 years of knowing Jesus. Often when I'm tempted in my flesh, the first reaction is I'm supposed to avoid the temptation. Just get away from it, right? There's, there's good reason for this. 1 Corinthians 7 says, flee sexual immorality. That word flee is like run for your life. Have a godly amount of sobriety in fear. Like it could destroy you. We are meant to be strong. And most often that means strong in our weakness. And I'm okay with that most of the time. But sometimes... God calls us to not simply avoid, but to confront, to expose the lies of the enemy. James 4, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Sometimes it's not just the time to run, but there are moments where we have to plant our flag and resist the devil, to call him out in his lies. I've had a uh, probably a few moments where I've 
weirded a few people out in the grocery store who walked by wondering why there's a man having a passionate argument with a bag of Oreos. (laughs) You can't satisfy me even if I ate all y'all. Even if my curiosity is a little bit triggered by this new flavor. What I don't have would not satisfy me. Don't act like you haven't been there. God made us with a deeper craving that that thing, that person, that cookie, that whatever that you don't have, if you had it, wouldn't satisfy you either. And when we try to fulfill our God cravings with anything other than God, we become more reduced, more depraved, more soul mutilated, more debased. All because what are, we, what are we doing? We're just trying to fulfill ourselves. We're just trying to cope. What you don't have wouldn't satisfy you either. It's not enough. So when I'm tempted to look at some sensual advertisement, most of the time I need to run away, to turn away, to, to look at something else. But sometimes there's a time where I need to talk to myself. I need to say, listen, Peter. Yes, a little bit borderline schizophrenic. Kind of like when David says, bless the Lord, O my soul. I need to say, listen, Peter, you, if you had all these things, only Christ can satisfy you anyway. Solomon had 700 concubines and he was left more disillusioned. Peter, you, you worry about your finances. But God has provided way too much for way too long for you to worry about that next thing. I need to talk to myself often. I need to remind my flesh that what I have already in Christ is better than that thing that I don't have. And I'm not willing to lose what I have. I'll fight for it. And sometimes it's got to be loud and confrontational. So be appropriately weird. However you dole that out rather than being defeated in the dark. What you have is not enough. What you don't have wouldn't be enough either. Number three, Jesus is more than enough. Jesus is more than enough. Why did he say, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing would be lost? And they gathered up, there's 12 baskets. Why, Why do you do that? He wanted to give a visual demonstration of, you know this thing that was impossible, guys? Everyone had enough. And not only is there more, but there's more than we even started with after doing all this. He wants to compare visually this thing that that you were so worried about I've made it out of nothing. And he continues to do the same in our lives today. This moment of how Jesus revealed who he is in this visual is important. In fact, when you close your eyes and just consider this scene, it should cause you to think of another scene that we've seen. When, when Jesus makes a bunch of people sit in the grass... It's a lot like the Lord is 
my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul, satisfies my soul. I love it in Spanish. It says, El Señor es mi pastor. Nada me falta. I lack nothing. I lack nothing. And why? Why is it that I lack nothing? Is it because I have the provision? No, 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 no. It's because I have the provider in his provision. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Not because I have a few things that I've memorized, which is good to memorize. Not just because I have a, a few tricks uh, that I can practice uh, being present or any of those things. No. Better than mindfulness or mind tricks, we have a person. He is the provision. He is the provider. He's more than enough. Now, Jesus doesn't just have more than enough. I didn't say Jesus has more than enough because this is the tragic misunderstanding of the crowds. Let me just tell you, this story didn't end well. Chapter 6 is a really long chapter, and I'll just walk you through it because there's some people that needed to see that Jesus is more than enough. And when their appetites were triggered, all they could see is, oh, Jesus, this dude's got the goods. No, this dude is the goods. He is more than enough. So Jesus does this amazing miracle. They misunderstood it. How sad is this when we almost see Jesus for who he is? Could this be the prophet? Well, yeah, but he's a lot more than you think. Okay, well, let's make him king. Let's make him the political ruler. Let's, let's, let's start a, a super PAC. Wrong idea. It says they tried to take him by force and make him king, and he just withdrew to the mountainside. The next day, he's, he walks across the sea. That's pretty cool. He walks across the water, and what does he find? He finds, next day, verse 22, the same crowds remained on the other side of the sea. They were there, and they saw that they they had brought a boat there. Jesus says to them, verse 26, You're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Meaning, the moment where I satisfied your old cravings, you're, based on your perversion, you started to see myself through the light of your misunderstanding. They start to say to him, well, you know, Moses gave the manna in the wilderness, referencing Numbers 11 and how the, this old first prophet who promised a kind of a little bit better of a Moses, you know, he gave them bread, and so, so you're giving bread too. And Jesus says, look, Moses didn't give you the bread. It was my father who gave you the true bed from heaven. And the bread of God is the one that comes down from heaven. He's saying, you have a misunderstanding about what your craving is for. He says to these crowds, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I have said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Jesus is saying, only I can satisfy. I am more than enough to satisfy. And you're not seeing it. 
And then what ensues is really similar as well to Numbers 11. Grumbling, disputes, and finally Jesus cuts to the chase and says a a pretty abrasive truth about himself. Verse 53, Truly, truly, I say to you that unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. Whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. Now, as you can imagine, this was hard for them to hear. And it even says this. They said, verse 60, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Many people started to leave Jesus. The crowds dispersed and went away. And it gets down to just the 12. It says, verse 66, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. 20,000 people down to 12. If Jesus were the pastor of this crowd of people, he'd probably be fired in this moment. They were eating on a false bread of a misunderstanding, of a reduction about who God is. And I'm afraid we often do the same thing. And then we wonder why we leave ourselves unsatisfied. Jesus wasn't excited about the crowds. What's kind of crazy is often I get way too excited about the crowds. It's like the false bread that I'm often tempted to eat. Jesus wasn't interested in having thousands upon thousands of fans fascinated by an inaccurate view of who he is. He didn't come for fans. He came for followers. He came to save sinners. 20,000 people had a fascination with this miracle worker, prophet, King Jesus, were fed by his power, and once they had their basic desires satisfied, they stopped short of really receiving all of who Jesus is. It's not enough that he triggers your desires and, and, and gives you a little bit of fascination. He's not here to just kind of help you achieve your goals. Jesus doesn't want to be a, just a conduit by which you satisfy your cravings. He's, he's kind of like the, the buttons you push. He's not a genie in a bottle so that you can have the happy wife, happy life, ha- perfect career, all those things that you dreamed about. He's just not a, a, a conduit that can be hired out to your passions. He wants to give us new cravings. These people almost believed in Jesus, and that is the worst. 20,000 people almost believed in him. And I wonder how many here today almost believe in Jesus. The most common substitute for believing in Jesus is believing in who you think Jesus is. This is what Pastor John Piper says about these crowds who left Jesus. He says they hadn't changed 
Rather, they just had found Jesus to be useful to satisfy the same desires that they had before they came to Jesus. May we not see how useful he is in our unregenerate cravings, but rather see how powerful he is to transform our cravings. And may we find our satisfaction in him. He's more than enough. They wanted to seize him and make him king. And they were right about him being a king, but they were wrong about his kingship. Jesus comes to conquer the enemy, not by subduing armies, but by satisfying souls. He's more than enough to satisfy us. What you have is not enough. What you don't have wouldn't be enough either, but Jesus is more than enough. So finally, I want to leave you with one crucial thing that you need to do. Give Jesus your not enough, and he'll give you his more than enough. It's the reason why Jesus went to the cross. It's the exchange that he offers to us. It's what we remember in faith at his table every week. We don't have enough for, uh, for our eternity, for our purpose on earth, for the satisfaction of our souls. What you have is not enough unless it's surrendered to Jesus. You know, the thing about barley loaves is barley was poor people's food. And Jesus is saying, if what you have, even if it's barley, if it's given to me, I'll make it more than enough. Give Jesus you're not enough. Now, am I talking about money? If you're a guest here, and you, you know, sometimes guests, rightly so, probably wonder, like, man, we're going to talk about money today? Don't be mistaken. This is a tithing sermon, if you need it to be. If money is the thing that prevents you from finding your satisfaction in the more than enough God, then render your tithe and your offering and your whole life, you're not enough to the one who can transform it into more than enough. I dare you. I dare you. He's more than enough. Jesus is the only one who will satisfy you. Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Don't think that this says that he will give you that which you formerly desired. No, no, no. He will give you new desires. He will give you greater desires. He will give you something that only miracles can fulfill. And he will give you miracles. Finally, consider this progression as we prepare our hearts to respond to the word at the table of God. Consider this progression. I said that it was a sad story, but uh, there is more of John after chapter 6. Because Jesus draws near to these people. These people are, are fascinated by Jesus, but also a mixture of their debased cravings and a false view of Jesus. That's often what we all struggle with. He draws near to them. He feeds them miraculously. They have a craving triggered 
expecting of Jesus something that is less than Jesus came to do. Jesus rebukes them with his joy, his love, his divinity, and they leave him. They abandon him. So what does he do? He dies on the cross for their sin. Have you left Jesus? Have you walked away from Jesus internally or even literally at times, looking for something else, someone else, that's just not quite enough, but maybe even knowing that, you try anyway? Have you walked away from him thinking that this other thing can define you, this other person can fulfill you? And has the face of Jesus' grief been longing for you as you walk away? The answer is yes, at different times for all of us. But you need to know this, that when we abandon Jesus, he still chooses to go to the cross and die for us so that we might have new life, new cravings, new desires, more than enough. Would you stand to your feet with me?